bring this back on. So, emotions are messages, signals. They are actually the first way we learn to communicate with our caretakers when we're infants. Well before we have language, that's what we have. We have emotions and through body language, through vocalizations, through uh, facial expressions, through um, glances, uh, we make connection with uh, our caretakers and the emotions are expressions of physical states that we're in to let other people know so that we can get security, protection, and needs met. And um, so an infant has a lot of different important emotional states. It, it needs to communicate. It needs to communicate hunger, thirst, fear, uh, discomfort, cold, hot, um, all those different states that it is dependent upon caretakers to be able to read its emotional messages, its signals, and to feel safe, connected, and taken care of, uh, it relies on a caretaker being very attuned, which means paying attention, sustaining attention, um, reading the emotional messages. And all this happens well before we pick up language. Uh, if all goes well and the caretakers are attentive and attuned, they also display tolerance because a lot of the emotions that emotional states we have are, are difficult ones. They're not always joy, happiness, giggling, fun. Look at me and how happy I am to be a baby. Um, sometimes they're constant fear, agitation, discomfort, uh, hunger, uh, displeasure, whatever. And if a caretaker is tolerant, then over the course of life, the child grows up with a very excellent chance of being able to have proper emotion regulation, which means two things. Uh, one, we're able, as adults, to know what emotional states we're in. We're able to read our own emotions. And B, we feel confident expressing them to other people. As human beings, we are dependent upon connecting with other people. Not dependent in a bad way, dependent in a good way. It's what gives human beings our vast survival advantage. The fact that we can coordinate, protect be understood emotionally bonded with other people. Um, the entire purpose of the right hemisphere of the human brain is to send emotional and receive and read emotional messages. It's largely done unconsciously. Most of the time we're conscious of the left hemisphere, which is language and logic and um, uh, narration. 
But these emotional needs go on throughout the course of our lives, and actually we are far more emotionally attuned as infants than we are linguistically attuned. So it's very important to have that secure, attentive connection. Um, Of course, many times in childhood, infancy and childhood, we have caretakers that are only so-so in the tolerance. They're very good with a joy, happy, confident, uh, calm baby or infant. But when the child becomes demonstrative, frightened, frustrated, uh, the caretakers can be lose interest or even reject, turn away from the baby or the infant. And then further on into childhood, when we need, we seek security, we can be shunned. And if the parents view us as um, inconvenient. So when uh, a, a child experiences a caretaker pulling away, rejecting or shaming or losing interest in being visually connected with its child, the child experiences this as deeply traumatic, deeply frightening, because we are very vulnerable in infancy. We cannot survive on our own. We know that. And when we lose our caretaker's attention, their empathy, their attunement, their tolerance, it can feel like a form of annihilation where we're being thrown to the wolves. And so, very often, certain emotions we begin to repress or develop what's known as dysphoric, really uncomfortable relationships with certain emotions. The very emotions that our caretakers wouldn't tolerate well, or our family members, or the other key people in our individuation process. So this process goes on. It doesn't just stop in childhood family. It also goes on to the other arenas of childhood when we meet other kids. Young boys are taught by other boys in playgrounds that they're not allowed to feel frightened or vulnerable. They're not allowed to act on any impulses that seem at all effeminate. Uh, there's all these messaging that goes on and people begin to repress very human emotions and urges and uh, drives and only perform the emotions that are rewarded, like aggression for boys, certainly in uh, schoolyards. So um, the problem is, of course, when we try to repress very key human inevitable emotions like fear, boredom, loneliness, sadness, uh, vulnerability, frustration, all of the difficult emotions, when we try to uh, get rid of them, a whole bunch of problems arise. First of all, you can't get rid of emotions. They're ingrained. All the studies of late from Ekman onwards have shown that they're not, emotions are not things that are actually implanted within us. Emotions are things that all human beings have a somewhat universal palette of that we're all born with. And we are certainly born with a limbic system that gives us fight, flight, freeze, discomfort, 
uh, craving, uh, all these very core emotional states. And there are many others. So you can't get rid of them. They're part of the human condition. But so many of our strategies, we learn to socialize and seek attention from others. We train ourselves to abandon ourselves, to disavow core emotions, to push them down, to not reveal them, because we feel that if we do, just like with our caretakers earlier on in life, if we show our loneliness, if we show our fear, if we show our aggression, if we show any of these qualities, we'll be completely abandoned, rejected. So some of the strategies we use are um, turning to drugs. Opiate addicts uh, use opiates to because they find either anger or sadness extremely uncomfortable. So they use those narcotics as a way to completely numb out when those emotional states arise. Um, alcoholics, such as myself, Yay, I'm Josh, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, uh, we um, we uh, use alcohol to uh, shut down anxiety because uh, there's most of us have a, an inability to um, properly regu- regulate uh, ang- anxiousness, worry, sort of like a spinning out mind, uh, People who have a very low amount of energy, who feel uh, uh, in, they, they feel dysphoric around uh, confidence or even just an ability to motivate themselves very often, seek out speed or stimulants. So another thing we do is when we don't feel our needs are met in early life and certain emotions, is we abandon those emotions and we seek people-pleasing, attention-getting at all costs so that we can get that love, that support, that security, that witnessing, that mirroring from people that we didn't get in childhood. Now, if we're lucky, at a certain point, the, these strategies these substitute strategies or these poor emotion regulation strategies fail us, and then we try to get our needs met through skillful ways, like yoga, exercise. We might, of course, even be, at the last resort, be driven to actually meditation. Yes, it's kind of that. (laughs) And what happens at first is, There's a buzzer. That's what happens at first. Um, There's progress. For the first time, we feel a sense of easing, a sense of uh, being more present in our own bodies, because part of the process of poor emotion regulation is uh, disavowal, repression. And when we do that, we lose contact with the body, because that's where so many of our uncomfortable emotions are felt. So we tend to seek refuge up in our minds. And when we go into yoga or meditation, we begin to return to body awareness. And that can develop a great feeling of progress in our lives. Of course, if we don't find these skillful solutions, if we just keep on repressing or turning our back on our frustration or uh, resentment or or fears or loneliness 
or uh, whatever, what happens is these feelings don't go away, these emotions build up and then they come out completely without any regulation. People have incidents of rage when they try to repress frustration. People go into severe depressions when they don't give an outlet, an awareness to sadness and discomfort. So very much to have any proper emotion regulation way of being with our emotions in a good, skillful way requires on feeling them, being aware of them, not repressing them. So anyway, back to the yoga, the meditation, the exercise. We go into a spiritual practice and we can feel... um, this sense of progress, and then what happens is uh, a very interesting phenomenon where this desire to not feel certain emotions begins to infiltrate into our spiritual practice. We want our meditation or our, our Buddhist practice or our Hindu practice or our yoga, we want to use it to get rid of parts of us oh, this is great, I learned how to meditate, maybe I'll never have to feel anxious again. (laughs) Maybe that anger will go away. Maybe that that fear that keeps me shut down when I'm around people or shy will go away. And so we get caught up in this agenda, what's known as the spiritual bypass. The spiritual bypass is a term, and it means, I'm going to read you the definition. I find it really, really important to know about this. It's using spiritual practice as a way to avoid or prematurely transcend basic human needs and psychological issues. So, using our spiritual practice not to integrate but to avoid or prematurely transcends, because people love the idea that they've trans- oh, I've transcended. <laughs> Half of the yoga centers I go to, the teachers want to present themselves as having transcended all of the ugly emotions, and they just come across as these narcotized, you know, overly happy people. There are, this is not always the case, and I've I actually been practicing yoga diligently for two decades, and there are some one, many, many wonderful teachers, but once in a while you go into one of those classes where it just, you know, I can't even do my yoga voice, but you have to trust me. It's just like, there's never been... A rainy day. Welcome. (laughs) You are here in the land of sunlight and (laughs) rainbows. So, um, and of course, that creates in us the sense of real failure when real emotions inevitably arise, when real human experience really arises, when anger, frustration sadness, boredom, loneliness, uh, confusion, doubt, all of the inevitable human experiences arise when uh, we, if we go to places that sort of present this spiritual bypass uh, fantasy 
then it can feel like we're doing something wrong. I'm not meditating hard enough. If only I learned this asana that, you know, if only I learned to do alligator pose correctly in yoga, whatever, <laughs> you know, I would never have to feel angry again. And in Buddhist practice, spiritual bypassing plays out in certain ways. We can use Buddhist practice to bring about uh, stress reduction. And that's a very useful tool, but sometimes we can mistake for stress just understandable states of fear or anxiety or worry. And we can try to remove these human emotions from our vocabulary. And then what happens is we're repressing. We're not opening. We're not holding. We're trying to outrun. We're trying to get rid of. Um, sometimes in concentration, which is sort of notorious practice of just focusing on the breath, concentration practice in and of itself, when it's done exclusively over years, can lead to a great deal of spiritual bypassing. Because, uh, trust me, I've been in the Buddhist path for three decades, and I grew up in a Buddhist family, and you go to centers and you meet people that still have huge issues with learning how to verbalize frustration. Or, let me tell you, sometimes just watching two Buddhists try to negotiate when one of their feelings has been hurt can be <laughs> nightmarish. Um, <laughs> because they've been so using concentration as a way to transcend you know, uh, uh, certain emotions that when they inevitably arise, it can be really uncomfortable, dysphoric, a feeling of there's something terribly wrong. I'm doing something wrong. I shouldn't be having this experience. And what it leads to is um, if we have any part of our human palate uh, repressed, suppressed, or not allowed to be present, it, it deadens us. A human being that cannot feel sadness or loneliness or boredom is not a happy human being. It's a deadened human, human <coughs> being. It's somebody who is um, creating a compartmentalized mind where only certain things are allowed up. And what tends to happen when we repress emotions is we become furious when other people act out on them. Because we're spending so much energy pushing down the, you know, the awkwardness, the, the, the sort of happy-go-lucky maybe, or any kind of of, a ne of human emotion in us that we don't like. We push them down, and then somebody comes along, and they're happy-go-lucky, or silly, or, or they're whatever it is we're trying to... <laughs> and we're horrified. And of course can be somebody, if we're really struggling with putting aside sadness or any dark thoughts or any dark emotional states, then it can be we see somebody who's depressed, and they can be toxic. They can feel toxic to us. Anything that we're struggling to get rid of will be very frightening when we encounter it in the world. So it reinforces a kind of personality split 
and uh, it creates this idea that there's the good part of us, and there's the uh, there's the part of us that we want to get rid of. And I've been for a long time. I've been doing you know one-on-one counseling, and so many times people come in, and what they want is, can you help me get rid of this part of myself that I don't like? And it you know. There's no way but to say, you know, that's not what we're doing. What we're learning to do is learning to hold and be with all of the human experience. So, because that's the only way to have any real emotion regulation, which is to have emotion integration. Not to run, repress, or view any of these feelings as bad or, or uh, incorrect. So there's some specific tools that I like to talk about when it comes to this. Um, I'll just leave them at four, and they're very easy to remember. Um, the first is that in our spiritual practice, we have to work with where we are not where we want to be. There's no right place to be on a day-to-day level. No matter what mood you're in, it's the right place to start and to work with and to learn how to hold and learn how to be with. There is no better place. You see images of the Buddha and, and of course, Tranquility and calmness and balance are, of course, very vaulted as they should be because they're states that we can, we can, the more we learn to open and hold and be with, the more balanced and tranquil and serene we become. But it doesn't, these states of balance and serenity don't come about by repression. They come about paradoxically by opening to whatever we're feeling. And, and, giving it a safe container. So part of the real work in spiritual practice is letting go of the expectations, the story, I should be further along. And I have to tell you, it's, it's really fun is when I hang out with teachers like myself and we've been practicing for, for years and years and years and years since the 80s and, you know, and then we run into somebody and I, I've been practicing for six months, and I'm still feeling <laughs> frustration. I know I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> you know, if only they could hear what goes on in these teacher, you know, Buddhist teacher conferences and stuff like that. But um, <laughs> if anything, we're more—we're just simply really radically in touch with our emotions and not afraid of, uh, you know. Uh, expressing them in a skillful way, hopefully. So um, the first is to greet and work with whatever state we're in, not to have an, a, a set of expectations or carry a narrative about how much further along in the spiritual path we should be, but actually to really greet whatever is present when we develop mindfulness during the course of the day. So the moment we do this, an enormous amount changes. Um, 
it no longer begins like uh, we don't begin each meditation with a sense of frustration. Oh my God, it's just it's just anger or discomfort again, or it's an, I have a jumpy, agitated mind again. It becomes a sense of each day we can bring hopefully a bit of okay, great, this is an opportunity. This is not. This doesn't mean I'm doing anything wrong. Part of Buddhist practice is to get stuck for a while and to learn how to develop real, real patience and real compassion for emotions that get lodged for a while. And then the more we drop that frustration and that sense of this is wrong and that rejection we begin to give ourselves the, the sort of care that we've been seeking our entire lives. So many of our ugly, so-called ugly emotional states are just uh, fears and vulnerabilities that we so yearn to have a connection or, or acceptance from others or protection from others and didn't get it. Part Number two, a part of working with dropping expectations and just greeting everything uh, is letting go entirely of the agenda of getting rid of anything in your personality. <laughs> I hate to be the one to bring this bad news. <laughs> I was in a severe depression quite a number of years ago. It was when really my practice became the absolute centerpiece of my life. Uh, I've been practicing for many years, but the way I was practicing, I was greeting uh, the thoughts of depression, the feelings of depression, as if they were unwanted visitors. And I wanted, there was this agenda, of, if only I could find the right way to practice, then I'll be able to get rid of this, this you know, voice of real just endless self-criticism and self-loathing ideas. And it says, oh, just, I can't wait to get rid of you. <laughs> and, of course, all these parts of us are there because they think they're protecting us. They all are just uh, things that have arisen because they feel they're they, need, they have a message that's important for us. And when we reject them or develop an antagonistic relationship with any part of our human experience, we never win. And it creates the second arrow of suffering, the Buddha said, which creates so much worse than even the, um, the original fear that or or self-judgment, or depression, or sadness, or loneliness, or whatever we feel, the way we react to that creates much more discomfort and agitation. And when we strip that away, and the agenda becomes, I want to learn how to live with you. I don't want to learn how to get rid of you. I want to learn how you can be part of me, that I can embrace. And when we do that, the fear or the frustration doesn't anymore just get so packed down that it explodes. We don't have those incidents where we suddenly just act out out of the blue because we're integrating, we're feeling the emotional energy that we once were, was running from or 
greeting as some kind of mistake or some kind of bad, you know, dysphoric, incorrect part of our personality or our characteristic. The third practice is to really investigate, to really get to know these emotional states. Um, really find them in the body. When they arise, often they'll arise as ideas. Moods create what's known as mood congruent ideas, and they tend to create a lot of thoughts. So if we're in fear, we'll have a lot of thoughts about how bad the future will be. If we're in craving, we'll have a lot of thoughts about the stuff that we crave. If we're lonely, we'll have thoughts about how people don't like us or whatever. So the, the key is to just say hello, allow those thoughts to be there, but pull our awareness down into the body and, and get in touch with the somatic experience that's really at the root of the core emotional state. The thoughts in life will change, but if we want to get really in touch with something very deep and very old, that's really meaningful. This is how we do it, through the body. Through really bringing awareness to how is this emotion feel in the torso. Emotions, as I said at the beginning, are signals, they're messages, and so they're always invariably in the front of the body. They're often contractions felt in the chest or in the stomach, a tightness maybe in the arms. There's invariably an a primary energy moving up in the body, if it's anger or a welling of sadness and grief or a frustration can be a sense of just the outer limbs and anger or aggression. So find it, locate it, give it a safe container, a place to arise without any agenda of getting rid of it. And then eventually we can take care of these feelings by sending them thoughts of... Um, Love, compassion, it's okay, you're allowed. There's nothing wrong, I will be there for you. So often in life, at very early ages, when we needed love and security because we felt vulnerable and frightened, our caretakers might not have been available or might have uh, not heard us or might not have given our needs the serious attention that they deserve. So we can do that work now. And finally, the fourth is finding and cultivating people in our life who are safe containers where we can share about these experiences. These people are not people we're turning to to fix us or solve us or give us suggestions. That can come down the line. The most important thing that we find with a wise, caring, compassionate, supportive, spiritual friend is are people who can create a container where we can say, right now I'm in a place in my life where I'm very, very anxious and confused, or I'm at a place where I'm, I, I'm lost, or I'm feeling just deeply... Um, like my needs aren't being met, or whatever state you're feeling, having people that can hear it and hold it and give it, just keep 
contact with you. That's probably, along with learning to read our own emotions in the body, that ability to have someone receive and hear and empathize is the deepest human need of all. Because that's how we make the connection with others that protect and sustain us. That's why the right hemisphere of the brain is such an important part of the brain, because that's what it's seeking and that's what it brings to us, deep, connected, true, loving, caring, empathetic bonds with others. And there is no real life complete without it. When the Buddha was asked, what's the role of other people in the spiritual path? He said it's the entirety of the path. Not half, but the entirety. Because what we need as human beings is that connection. I was reading, finally, a a wonderful, wonderful... I'm a neuroscience geek, uh, as well as a clinical psychology geek. So I'm a drastically boring human being. But um, uh, I was reading a a piece by a new um, neuroscientist who was saying that for a long time, people have been completely misreading the brain. And we like to think that the logic part of the brain is the most important, dominant, the thing of the brain that is driving everything. And that the limbic system, the emotional core and the right hemisphere are these things that sort of get in the way and crop and rise up in our lives and are inconvenient. And his argument was that it's exactly the opposite way around. That the core human needs to connect and bond and sustain deep emotional, real, true, open connection with other human beings is the most important part of the human mind is what gives us the ability to survive. Human beings don't run very fast. We don't climb trees very well. The reason we became safe is because we can work together. We can bond. We can be together. We can protect and trust one another. And the way we do that is through the emotion. Received, read, understood, felt, not repressed emotions. And the, the sole job of the left hemisphere is just to make that task a little easier. But it's not running the show at all. The emotional needs are. So our spiritual practice cannot be an, a practice with an agenda of repressing anything. It's an agenda where we open and reclaim and refeel and reconnect with all of those core emotional feelings that we disavowed earlier in life to make ourselves more popular or more palatable to other people. So I hope there was something in there worth pondering. Thank you uh, for listening. I'm going to turn off the tape.